From ACAST Studios and Western Sound, this is The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. I'm Ben Adair, and this is Episode 2, Mama's Boy. So uh, you did the, the robbery in San Diego, and then you were in prison. The whole time you were in prison, were you thinking about... I was, no, I was like, when I went in, I literally was like, I know what I'm doing when I get out. In fact, when I got out, I knew so much what I wanted to do. Like, like a bank robber allowed me to just concentrate on one thing, and this was going to be my thing, and that felt elevated, too. Like, in the pantheon of crimes, like bank robbery is a really romantic crime. And so I felt like that's where I want to occupy. I had been such a petty criminal up until then, burning family, bouncing check, like crimes are just petty and bullshit and embarrassed, hugely embarrassing. I think if you looked at all my crimes before that, I was way more, I was embarrassed. Bank robbery, I was like proud to be a bank robber. I was like, okay, if I'm gonna be a criminal, bank robbery is cool, you know? How about, so, uh, let, do you wanna get out for a second? Sure. And, and, and walk around? Yeah, let's get out for a second. Okay, so um, so I got out of prison in 1988. I wanted to wait a month before I started robbing banks because I was worried that the first bank I robbed, I'd get busted and I'd go right back, and I didn't want to go right back. I'd just done about two years. I thought, give myself a month to go dancing, have some sex, you know, kind of party, do my thing, and then take a chance. So my brother had let me stay at his place in Pasadena, and... Um, <laughs> My brother had two roommates. One was a musician, and then the other guy actually worked for an armored car company. And he had his guns not locked up in the garage. So I got a gun. I asked my brother if I could borrow his car. <laughs> and I drove on the 210 to where it ended here in Laverne, parked behind the supermarket, whatever it was over there. I walked into the bank with my Mickey Mouse t shirt on. <laughs> No disguise, no nothing. I knew what I wanted to do. I just needed to get to the the, uh, the teller, say my spiel, and get out of there. Did you, um, did you, how did you come up with that strategy? Because you, you did it once in San Diego, and it was almost like happenstance that you exactly. ended up robbing the bank that you robbed. Yeah, exactly. But then, so you learned from that, and then you just said, like, okay, well, this is what I'm so going to do So just keep building on right? So, like, what I learned in San Diego was... Oh, I'm still fast. I got speed. So when people chase me out of the bank, I'm going to put distance between me and them. I would learn other lessons, which I'll tell you about when we get to the next one. But this place built off the information, the knowledge I gained from the other, which is long distance between me and the bank of my car in case I need a book, in case I need to run. I would just use that tactic from then on. So, Joe, this was the second bank that you robbed. And soon you're going to become one of California's most prolific bank robbers. But, like, what was it? Like, it seems like it was doing something more than just getting you money. What was robbing a bank, like, really getting you? It allowed me to use my rage to make victims that would then, I could feed off their fear. I would get agitated and and maybe feeling stressed in the world, helpless, whatever. When I came to do this, I made other people feel helpless. I felt empowered. It's like just insecure male shit, except like I turned it into a gig where I could get paid by blasting through my my helplessness and insecurity by being vicious to somebody who scared them. And then that fear of making the victims out of other people instead of me being a victim of my own helplessness, then I would get paid for it. So like I married my greed and my rage and it was like a perfect thing for me. 
Part 1. A Death in the Family. Joe, in the last episode, you mentioned your mom getting sick and that it really affected you, really affected your family. Not to be all, tell me about your mother, but what was your childhood like? What was your mother like? What was it like, young Joe, growing up? Okay, so I was born in 1961, and I was born in East Los Angeles, the old Maravilla housing projects. Back in those days, uh, my parents were 16 when I was born. Actually, my mother had just turned 17 when I was born and um, had they grown up in Maravilla? They grew up in uh, not the Maravilla housing projects, but East LA as well. Okay. Um, and so my mother and dad found out they were, my mother was pregnant. They went to their parents. Their parents said, "You're getting married." They were in tenth grade. They said, "You're getting married," and um, it was a loving home, cool loving home. The love story that I was raised in with the fa- my parents. They've loved each other since they were 12. Everyone loved them. I was raised in that love story. I was raised in the love. We went to church, and our church was our life at that time. I was raised with Bible stories. I was raised at church camps. I was raised potlucks. Man, I was raised in the church, and I was raised with a dad who wanted to be a preacher, and he had a love of language. He was, um, he was very smart, and he was devoted to learning. So even though he dro- um, my mother dropped out in 10th grade, and he dropped out for a minute, he went back, completed high school, worked hard, went to night school, um, and then decided to go to college and started doing college. And he wanted to get educated. So he was pursuing education. Again, everything was cool until seven, I turned seven. By that time, we'd moved out to Pico Rivera, and my mother got sick. And my dad had been this little gang kid who had converted to God, but he didn't know how to control his temper. So uh, when he would get angry, he would, he would, you know, he just had a bad temper, very bad. He'd been brutalized as a kid. And so it was showing, it would show itself. So your dad's like 23 now when your mom starts getting sick. Is that right? That's always, man, this always gets me, man. This conversation with my mom always fucking breaks my heart. Um, I remember my mother got a job at uh, the Sears Tower over here on Olympic. I don't even know if the Sears building is still there. But there's a big Sears building there, and she got in the typing pool because she apparently she was like, she was a typing foolia, man. But what I remember about that is my dad would would go warm up the car. <laughs> my dad would go warm up the car outside. This is the days when you weren't afraid someone's just going to steal your car, right? He would go warm up the car, you know, turn the heater on in there because it's cold. It was, you know, it was early morning, like 3 or 4. Maybe it was, maybe it was 4 or 5, who knows. But it seemed super early, dark, cold. And then he would wrap us up inside and he would take us, carry us to the car. And we... We were in the back seat sleeping. That was also in the days when you didn't need to buckle your kids in the back seat. And then he would take my mom, and I remember I would get up and I would look out, and there was fog over there by the by the LA River when you would go over like First Street or one of those bridges in LA. And uh, and I remember like, wow, oh, this is weird. It's like when you see those old movies and like Casablanca, and there's this fog going by and it's dark. It was like that, but it was early morning and. And uh, she was a sharp dresser, you know. I remember her looking sharp. That's one of my first memories, but it's not until he's seven, right? She was already sick then. 
and very sick and she didn't know and she was just tired. She thought it was just because of her work or whatever. And she had to take a physical. That's when the doctor was like, oh shit, something's wrong. And then she was in and out of the hospital. Like our life was just kind of, what? Uh, it's just, it was topsy-turvy after she got sick. I remember once I visited her, and I hated that hospital. I hated the smell. I hated being there. I hated her shuffling over to us and her chanclas and her little, you know, the hospital dressing they had. I hated her smell of, of, of sponge bath. I hated it all. The beeping, the, all that stuff, man, it brings back crazy feelings of helplessness. So for a long time, um, I hated hospitals. And... Um, the smell, I, I just, I can't stand it. Oh, I can't stand that smell. I was seven when that happened, so think about it, man. That was 51 years ago, and I'm still, I'm still fucked up about it. So mom's Mexican, Mexican, like salt on everything. Salt on oranges, salt on watermelon, salt, 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 weed, salt on everything, man, right? Chile and salt. And uh, one of the things is the bane of uh, kidney disease is salt. Can't have salt. And so um, at one point there was a nurse that would come to like take care of her during the day when she wasn't in the hospital and cook for her. She was just too sick. So I remember she's cooking steak She's in the kitchen. She comes and she brings the plate. And she brings out that shitty little light blue salt substitute, you know. And my mother reaches for it. And when the woman turns her back to go in, she puts it down. And she reaches in her purse right by her. And she pulls out these salts, these little tiny salt packets. And she's talking to the woman to sound that woman's response while she's in there. And she rips it open. And she looks over and she sees me looking at her in total violation totally breaking the rules, knows that's not supposed to ha- She's not supposed to ha- It's killing her. And what does she do? She puts her finger up and like, shh. And the conspiracy tells me, don't tell your dad, basically. So I'm being raised to be this honorable, honest kid by this very moral father who's super strict and wants to be a preacher. And my mother's letting me know, I don't give a fuck about his theology. Hmm. I don't give a fuck about God. And I don't give a fuck about right and wrong. What I give a fuck about is I want salt on my food. I want to taste it. Fuck the rules. I'm going to do this. I love that. Well, and then the other thing that your mom was saying, too, when eating salt is like, fuck life, fuck living. Well, fuck the kind of living they want to do where I would be suffering living. But also, like, like it's killing her. Mm-hmm. And she knows that it's killing her. So she's, yeah. And in a way, it's also like, fuck everybody around me. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm dying. Leave me alone. Let me do what I want to do. That's exactly what it is. What was your experience of her as she got sicker and sicker? Like, did you notice? What What did you What do you remember about her changing physically, mentally? Remember when she was in junior high, she had been voted, you know, Tower Queen of Griffith Junior High. She was beautiful. When she got sick... 
the medications that they gave her made her look like she was nine months pregnant. But she also got really skinny and gaunt everywhere else. And she lost the body in her hair. She got dark circles under her eyes. And, you know, she could barely move. She kind of shuffled. Um, when she was home, she was feeble. She was so drugged up. Her back, I would scratch her back sometimes. She still loved to scratch her back. And I stayed home a lot. I was sick a lot. I was a sickly boy. So I got to spend time with my mom. And I would scratch her back. And I would. I had this, I knew the pattern of her back that I could scratch because I, I would scratch her back. I would come across this rough skin. I realized, okay, I'm going into the little volcano head of the, bo um, the, the boil. Let me move around it. And I would just find the pattern and scratch her back. And she loved that. Um, her wrist, the vein was raised on the wrist because they were constantly putting needles into it so that it almost looked like you could see you could see the blood flowing through it. It was really creepy. And then her mind left her. Periodically, it would leave her. And um, in dramatic ways. So one day, um, we came home, you know, like we always did. Mother was still in the hospital that day. It was a Thursday. But we're outside playing basketball. Me, my brother Paul... My cart, some of the other fellas. And I get called in to my grandma. Hey, man, come on up. I come on up, and I knew something was strange because there's people in the house. They're all dressed up, people from church, family people. And this doesn't happen during the week, a weeknight, Thursday night. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I have no clue, really. I'm a clueless nine-year-old boy is what I was. And my dad comes in. And everybody moves towards my dad. And there's these like somber hugs, whatever. And nobody's trying to reveal to us what's going on yet. We're just dopey boys. Our life about to intersect with Chance like a motherfucker here. And um, he comes, he gets us, he walks in the room. We sit down at my grandma's bed. And then he tells us that, you know, my mom's, you know, she's not going to see her again. She, she died. She's in heaven. And, yeah, he breaks it to us that she's dead and it's just us. And I remember thinking that... Uh, you know, I was going to be strong. For some reason, I felt like I need I need to be strong for this. And I, I tell my dad that I'm not going to cry. I said, don't worry, I'm not going to cry. I'm still going to be strong. He goes, no, you know, you need to cry. You know, men cry. He says, you know, and then <laughs> he went through a little list. George Washington cried. Moses cried. Abraham Lincoln cried. <laughs> I'm like, well, shit, all right. I said, yeah, you know, King David cry, you can cry. And so after he lays down this list of a bunch of crybabies, I feel like, oh, I'll cry. So I cry. And then it comes, you know, it's heavy, 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 heavy. And then Paul's crying. My dad's crying. And uh, it was actually one of the best moments of my life in that the feeling you get when... My dad leaned forward and pulled us into him, and it was just us, and we're all crying, and we just become this one spasm of anguish and pain, and and there's this unity of our grief that around the same thing, and it's like one of the most beautiful moments I've ever had with my dad, and and it's important because around this morbidity. The death of my mother is also one of the most erotic feelings that you have. By erotic, I don't mean sexual erotic. I just mean feeling, like just all this emotion and all this body chemical stuff going on. 
you're crying and you feel near to these people. You, you're, you're literally hugging and touching and crying and shedding tears and kissing each other. It's a, it's a moment of unity. It was like a for brief moment, all the violence, all the, the, the pain that we've been struggling with, is, she's gone. There's relief in that moment. And we just cried our, our eyes and our heart out. And it's like, oh. And he gives us to come. And he says, here. And we all, like, he's giving us, like, breaking bread. It's like a fucking, it's our thing, right? It's a pet. So now we got a physical thing that we can all physically do together for a little ritual here. And he says, we're going to be fine. We're going to do this. We got this. So on February 4th, my mother passed away around 3 o'clock, apparently, Thursday afternoon, on the dialysis table, heart attack. February 8th, the night before the funeral, my dad decides that he's going to stay at his house. He's going to pray in the morning. My aunt said, don't worry, Joe, we'll, we'll, we'll take the boys. 1971, February 9th, in that morning, I'm asleep, and I start hearing, like, <laughs> I'm like, what the hell is that noise? Rattling. And the window's vibrating. And they're all kind of, everything on there is moving. And they jump up, my aunt's screaming, earthquake! 6.01 in the morning, there's Silmar earthquake hits. And it hits hard, and it's rocking and rolling. It, there's, it's going so hard and so long that they jump up. My aunt takes me under the, the kitchen table. My other aunt takes my, my brother under the door. And then my aunt scolds my aunt who's taking me under the table. Get over here. Like, we're able to run around. And the mirror, I think, fell and collapsed. Like it's, she's like, it's, stuff's falling off the windowsills. It was a big earthquake. And I remember thinking about that. Like, there's a Bible story where... Uh, the angels came and they fought for Moses' bones and they took Moses' bones to heaven, which is kind of a weird story nonetheless. I liked believing that maybe the raucous rumblings on the planet was some spiritual beings came and just dragged my mother's body out of the ground. So you're going to heaven with us, man. Come on, right now. You now I added that spiritual, mystical component to it. Because we were grieving a lot of pain that day and we had this physical like shock to our system um, that was also uh, while we were having an emotional shock to our system and roiling inside literally the planet was you know around this was roiling too so it was um, it's the stuff of mysticism We'll be right back. Uh, so tell me, so um, where did you meet Joe? And do you remember? Do you remember when you met him? Like the, yes. the day that you met him? 
We were both uh, in junior high, as they used to call it back then, in the 70s. It was 1976. This is Danny Shaw. Danny Shaw is one of Joe Loya's oldest friends. Just to place us in time, Joe's dad remarried less than a year after their mom died. And soon they moved out of the apartment they'd been living in in East L.A. Too many bad memories there. They moved to a whole different city, which is where Joe and Danny met. Uh, We were both in ninth grade. And Joe and I were at the same junior high called Luther Burbank Junior High School in Burbank. And I, we both met in civics class. And then we ended up developing a friendship after that. And he, he had to invite me to uh, his house to meet his father and stepmom. Just seemed like another kid. You know, just like another... Uh, he was smart. He was articulate. Um, I could tell. Um... And very friendly, had a very charming, outgoing personality. And that's what gravitated a lot of his friends to him. Is there a moment that you can think of of Joe being charming, a story that you could tell us about Joe being charming? The first time I noticed it was his interaction with teachers. He had a very manipulative style. But in a, I wouldn't say that without the negative element okay. of it. He put the teachers at ease. He joked uh, very easily. Um, He smiled frequently, and he was able to engage them and basically get what he wanted um, and keep them smiling and happy in return. Is there like a particular teacher that you, or a particular time you can remember that happening? The first one was when we were shared the same civics class, a a man named Mr. Wasserman, um, who was kind of standoffish, that kind of thing. But I think Joe saw that as a, a challenge. Hmm. And after a while, I started realizing, started noticing that uh, Joe would put Mr. Wasserman at ease and would give Mr. Wasserman the opportunity to laugh. And then there was a biology teacher in a class that we took that was an older old lady, appeared to be coming towards the end of her career as a teacher. So her attention span was short. Her patience level was very was even shorter. Yet Joe managed to keep her smiling and laughing, too which was very, very rare in uh, her dealings with our fellow classmates. Hmm. We couldn't get the reaction out of her that Joe did. And I'm sure he got better grades for it as a result. But he knew how to uh, sugarcoat these folks, if, if I can use that verb, or just basically uh, make them happier and uh, get what he wanted. He was like work in the room. Exactly. Hmm. And he was at a young age at that time, because um, we're 14, 15, years of age, uh, he possessed that skill and was quite adept at it. So you guys, you and Joe stayed friends throughout high school? Yeah, we went to the same high school for probably two years. I think it was uh, our sophomore and junior year, and then Joe relocated then. Then his dad moved them to Alhambra, and that's where he ended up graduating high school from, and I lost contact with him then. Okay, okay. What, I mean... What did you guys do? What's like a typical, you guys were best friends hanging around? Uh, oh, at the time, I was taking karate uh, in 1976, and Joe and his uh, father and brother all enjoyed the Bruce Lee movies at the time. They were very, very popular. So his dad would take us to Bruce Lee movies, you know, and we'd watch them and enjoy them. And prior to that, too, I was teaching, you know, I was teaching the karate moves that I knew to Joe. And basically just doing the same old stuff, going to the high school football games on Friday night and um, hanging out with our friends because we all had mutual friends and that sort of thing. Joe's friends, yeah, quite a lot of them, 
a lot of female friends and all that because he knew how to talk to them, knew how to make them feel at ease. Uh, and they responded back in kind. It was So I just kind of, uh, I would just stand in the background and the sidelines and just wait for these pretty girls to uh, fall by the wayside. And then I would try and uh, <laughs> make friends with them. A typical junior high uh, male libido. How'd that work out for you? Uh, not too well. <laughs> <laughs> Joe was much better at it than I was. Uh, and even years later, when I would run into these same women, uh, probably the second question out of their mouths is, uh, what do you hear from Joe? How's hmm. Joe? That sort of thing. So he made a greater impact upon him than I did. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe was kind of like, he was a popular guy. He Very was popular. like a... Life of the party. Yeah. That kind of guy. I went to school in the, ten, it sounds like 10 years after you. I was mm-hmm. in high school in the late 80s. And um, we would have called somebody like that a player. Right. Back then. Right. That was kind of who he was. Right. There's, um, so, uh, when you knew him in Burbank, was, was Joe an athlete? Yes, that's true. Yep. Okay. So one of the things that Joe says kind of like all the time is that he broke school records in track. Yes. He was very good at it. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> and he, he was a very good football player too, because he could. He was a football player? Yeah. Because, well. By like f- a wide receiver? Yeah. And, but I'm talking about like, uh, street games. Oh, okay, you know, okay, not okay, on okay. the not on the team itself. Yeah. He was way too skinny for that. Um, yeah, I was going to say like could, maybe wide receiver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe he's no NFL stud. Uh, but when we played football on the street and all that, or with friends on a you know on a weekend or something like that, mm-hmm. he was very very good mm-hmm. at that and could move. Had very very quick moves and could uh, cover a lot of ground real quickly. So you went back to Joe's house and you met his family, you met right. his brother, you met his dad and his stepmom at the time. Um, how would you characterize their family at the time or what did you pick up on? What I picked up on first off is his dad was an extremely highly educated man and more importantly self-educated. I was very impressed with the fact that his dad spoke ancient Greek. Hmm. I didn't even know what ancient Greek was, yet his dad had read books about it and could uh, speak it. Um also, his dad was very, 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 very dedicated to education, and not just uh, his own sons, but any of his son's friends and, uh, as well, including me. So that's the one thing I was very impressed with his father. What could you tell about the family dynamic at that time? His stepmom was um, a Caucasian lady named Brenda. Right. She seemed to be... Um, the best way to put it. Their marriage didn't appear to be an equal one. It appeared that Joe's dad well, kind of ran the show. And that, his dad was an uh, insurance salesman. And all of those uh, cliches and uh, uh, you've ever heard about insurance salesmen were right up his uh, alley. Um, he was very, very good at, uh, at insurance sales because he had that kind of personality too that obviously Joe picked up on as well. And that is the ability to, to put people at ease right away, to talk to them uh, in an easy, non-threatening, comfortable style, and also get what he wants at the end, which is probably a, an insurance sale, hmm. that sort of thing. Now, um, I knew uh, Joe has a younger brother named Paul who's about two years younger than him. Um, and they both, you know, at that time, it seemed like a pretty happy family. I didn't realize the underlying 
um, reality was far different. Uh, Joe kept that very secret, didn't really relay it to me, and I considered him, uh, me to be his best friend. Uh, it wasn't until years later that he finally told me what happened and all the rest of that and the incidents that occurred that ended up uh, kind of breaking up his family um, and creating his anger that led to a lot of problems later on in his life and the dissolution of his parents' marriage because right. his, his uh, stepmom saw this anger side of uh, Joe's dad, uh, Joe Loya Sr., and um, ended the marriage with him. We'll be right back. Part two, Mama's Gone. Joe, do you remember the first time your dad hit you? No. When's the first time you remember? I mean, I just feel like it was always hitting me. I just, it was, wow. Because you remember, like, I was getting hit in the bottom even as a toddler, don't do that whack, whack them on the butt. That's like asking a, a fish to describe the properties of water, right? There's no way he knows that. It's like I was always, I was always getting hit. There was a moment, for example, my mother was had to have been ill at this time, and I had to memorize my multiplication tables. And my dad would do this thing where he wanted us to be the smartest kids in the class. Because we were scholarship kids and we were the brown kids, he wanted us to be better and smarter than the other kids. So sometimes he would make us do things that we weren't yet learning. So like, for example, multiplication tables. I hadn't got there yet, but he wanted me to know them. And I had to memorize all 144, you know, 1 times 1 is 1, all the way to 12 times 12, 144. And he wanted to learn me to learn like in a day or whatever. He comes home and, uh, and and tests me. And he tells me, for everyone I miss, I'm going to get two spankings. It's like he wanted perfection because he felt if I didn't get it right, then that meant I was lazy. That meant I was being undisciplined, which means I was also being refractory. I was just, you know, rebellious kid for not learning. I miss five. You know, the five you're always going to miss. Nine times eight, eight times seven. <laughs> like, there's like, there's some that always get me, right? I just I couldn't, couldn't figure them out. And then he's going to hit me 10 times with the belt. And my mom, you know, cries out, no, don't hit him. Don't hit him. You know, he didn't do bad, man. It's a 144 equation. And he does this crazy thing, man, I'll never forget. He puts the belt in her hand and says, you hit him then. And he bullies her into hitting me. She's crying while she's hitting me, torturing her, sadistic. And uh, she hits me so feebly because she doesn't want to hurt me that he says, you didn't make him cry. And I was a fool not to cry out because it didn't hurt. I mean, you know, I probably was crying just because the anguish of the thing, but I wasn't crying out in pain for the hitting, spanking. So he goes out and hits me. He needed to hear me cry in elaborate pain, and I wasn't clearly wasn't doing that with my mom saying. So, like, yeah, my dad would get demented. It was about proving who's the boss and all this other kind of sadistic bullshit in there. And he would throw he would throw all that in the mix. And then, yeah, stuff like that happened. 
Now, we were little, so it wasn't like he was, he didn't have to do things he would later have to do. You know, kick us and use weapons on us. But uh, when we were little, that little, he just would whack us with the belt, you know. Is there the first time you remember, like, crossing a line, like, this was different? What happened just now is different than just regular stuff. Yeah, when I, um, when I, uh, got suspended for a week, that beating was so bad. I mean, I got hit with a can. He beat me with a candle, one of those thick, big candles. Uh, I, I could, and he whipped me so hard that he didn't just whip me on the butt anymore. He whipped me on my thighs and he hit me on my, whipped me on my lower back. You, I couldn't go to school even after the period of time was up for me to go back because he found out late in the week that about it. So I was supposed to go back like the day or next day or two days later. I couldn't go back for three or four days because the welts were so bad. I mean, Brenda would not let me go to school. Brenda, your stepmom. She felt that they would, they would send me and that would get him in trouble. And I remember thinking like that, that was a vicious, vicious beating. And it started with getting punched in the solar plexus as soon as I walked in the house and having the wind knocked out of me and taking a beating like that. Oof. It just, and it went on. It went on like there was, it went on for days. Like I would get beat, and then the next day, even I got I got hit again. I got beat that whole day. <laughs> like it was a bad. It was that was a. You know, I had crossed the line with him, had deceived him for an, almost an entire week that they were going to work. I mean, the deception had been so, so bad. I think he really wanted to, like stop me in my tracks, but I was so far gone already. You know, mm. Mm. that was a vicious beating. You know, once I came home and he was, uh, I had been walking home from school and I got in a fight with this one guy. I got in an argument with this one guy and he and his boys are like, hey, man, you got to fight him. You got to fight him. I'm like, I'll fight you. You know, that's Mexican honor. Me against you. Let's do it. Let's, let's sling our dogs. And so we got to find the right place though, to do it so nobody, you know, nobody will jump in. I said, like, all right. So dopey me. They're like, hey, but you got a nice sweater on, man. Take it off. And it was a nice sweater. My stepmother, Brenda, used to get us the great sweaters. It's kind of a little argyle thing across the front. Kick-ass sweater. And I'm like, you know what? These are gentlemen, man. They don't want to ruin my sweater. I get it. That's actually cool. It's very courtly, I felt like. So I go to pull my sweater, <laughs> and then all three of them jump the shit out of me. They beat me, and i like, I'm just fucked. I've got that sweater <laughs> Halfway off, and I can't throw any punches. They're holding the sweater, dragging me around, just kicking punch. I just fall to the ground and get the shit beat out of me. And um, break my glasses right in the middle, right? Crack it right in the middle. So I go walk home. I'm all beat up. Oh, my my sweatshirt's all ripped and I'm just tore up, right? And I don't, my glasses are broken. So I walk in, and my dad's studying the Bible, getting ready to, you know, teach and stuff like that. Um, and he said, What happened? I said, I got jumped. And I show him my glass. He's so mad. He walks over, slaps me. Says, uh, "You know, you you got to get it. You got to go fight these guys. We're gonna find them, and you're gonna fight them one by one. And essentially, like you're too much of a sissy. You got to recover your manhood. This is bullshit." 
So he puts me in the car. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm scared of these dudes now, man. They, they just taxed my ass, man. And they did it easy. But I have to do it, man. I mean, dad's teaching me a very valuable lesson that will haunt his ass later, which is if you get sized up as being weak, you better be willing to go overboard and actually make a statement later. You cannot stay weak. That idea of me being a weak kid, he's not going to tolerate that shit. I got to learn payback. Well, it's, I mean, we just heard in the previous episode, we heard about you in prison. That's basically what you tried yeah. to do in prison, but proactively. Yeah. I was learning it early in these years Yeah, that, you know, if you get beat up, then it is the beating is, is bad. The shame that will accrue to you as a man afterwards from other men. Way oh, worse. Way worse. Um, so my dad's not going to have a pansy for his son. Puts me in the car. We start driving around. Anytime time he sees some kids, I'm trying to slink in my seat, front seat. I can't. And he says, hey, is that them there? I put my glasses together and hold them up to my face. Like, no. And he's like, he's mad. He's mad at me. I'm just, I'm a walking badge of weakness to him. To him, it's like, you you shamed the Joe Loya name. He's not mad at the kids who beat you no, up. He's, he's mad, mad at me. At you. Yeah. I, right there next to him is all the evidence that he's a fucked up father because he's creating such a sissy boy. And he's not going to have that. He's at least going to be able to say to the people, my son went back and tried to clean it up. And even if I get beat, at least I try to clean it up. So you and your dad, did you ever find the guys? So we do finally find them walking out of a liquor store. Is that them? And I put my glasses together and went, no. And, you know, I find he gets whacked across the face. Um, and he drives home pissed, pissed. He's just so mad that his son was a sissy. I mean, and you're just trying to be a kid, right? You're in junior high. You're just a kid. It's a crazy time in my life in eighth grade. I was very confused about a lot of things. Uh, I was starting to act out, for example. I would pull fire alarms. But I was also up to get the American Legion Award for, like, the best student because I was such a good student and I was popular and I was... Mm, I was falling apart. But one of the things from eighth grade that I remember is this. It's one of the most pathetic moments of my life. You know, I was so lost. I was desperate for female affection. And one time I was sitting down watching TV and my Aunt Gloria reached down and she started scratching the back of my neck. I was like, what? Ooh, what? What the hell? I like this way this feels. This is amazing. Like, that was when I realized, oh, shit, I'm missing stuff. I just needed female affection because my mom was gone. She had been super affectionate with me. So if there was a girl who gave me any kind of affection, I would just grab onto that and make it bigger than it was because I needed it to fulfill such a big space. I remember this one girl. We're in eighth grade cute and personality and I, I had a crush on her she had a crush on me I wanted to give her a card to, to express how much I cared about her I drew this elaborate card I drew vines on the side with these little leaves so that you could see the little veins in the leaves and I, when you went inside you know in bold block letters I wrote I love you I needed her to hear and feel the emotions I felt because she was saving me from despair because she had shown affection to me. 
So I write this thing and make it. I'm like, gosh, she's going to love it. And I go to school. I can't wait to give it to her. And I give it to her. And between classes, I slide it to her and she gets it. And I say, it's hey, great. And I can't wait for class to be over. This is going to be the start of something great. She comes back and she walks towards me like, like with a look almost like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And it was just like everything, any magic of the moment was gone. Like now I was somebody she wanted to avoid. Now I was somebody like, I mean, I just reeked of desperation. I remember like that landing on me like, oh shit, Joe. You can't be sharing this shit with people. What's really going on with you, what you're really feeling, your vulnerability, it's going to bite you in the ass, man. This is how it's going to be. You're going to walk around thinking, oh, I'm just going to be honest, I'm going to be sincere, I'm going to be sentimental, I'm going to share what I'm feeling, but you're broken, man. You're fucking desperate, and you reek of desperation, man. Do not fucking tell people how you feel. They will burn you. Joe, this is like a brutal question, but it sounds like it was just going from bad to worse. Like, how bad did it get? Um, so I'm playing football at Shea Park down the street from where I lived in Montebello on uh, Villa Nero. And um, I was in ninth grade. I'm, I'm the quarterback. I go back to pass, and I get tackled really hard. And when I get tackled really hard, my head hits the ground. I get a concussion. A really bad concussion. The kind they take people out of the game and, and, and they get doctors to check them out. Because I'm daffy. Wait, did you pass out? No, I didn't pass out. Or I'm just like... stars, sort of. What? Yeah, I'm in another another phase, right? And it's so bad that they start joking with me because I keep asking questions and stuff. And I'm gullible. I'm totally gullible. Um, and so they t- start telling me that my friend Joanne and Eleanor at school, they're lesbians. I'm like, what? Really? How'd you know? And and they just were playing with me because I was so, I was punch drunk, you know, just a really serious concussion. So they, we can't play football anymore. And they walk me home. They know it's time to go home. Uh, and so when we get home, Brenda comes home or Brenda's home. And um, I go ask Brenda, hey, when's dad coming home? She goes, you know, whatever, half hour. A few minutes later, I come in. Hey, when's dad coming home? She said, I already told you. A couple, you know, half hour, half hour, something like that. I keep coming in every couple of minutes because I don't remember. I don't remember. I just asked her. Well, my dad does come home. Brenda tells him something about me that, you know, Joey's acting up. He's something weird going on. Here's what I remember. I go sit down with him. He says, sit here. Edge of the table. He's at the other, you know, right next to me. And he says, are you lying? And I don't know what he could be talking about. I know one thing, I'm not lying. I mean, no. And whack, he hits me across the side of the head and I go falling to the floor. He's like, get up. Which is not novel. That's the way he was. He would hit you, punch, get up. Like it was a menacing tone. It was threatening. It was just like that. It was a hit across the head so hard, it knocked me and my chair over. Get up. I get my chair up. I sit again. Are you lying? No. Whack. Get up. Like that. I ain't lying, but I'm now my concussions, even I'm getting more head trauma. So I end up waking up the next morning remembering that. It was not like I remember a lot of details about he sent me to bed. He said anything to me. other. I just remember that. Did your dad ever apologize? Did he ever say he was sorry? 
said he's sorry all the time. All the time. And he would have he would go into shame spirals and he would cry and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We were like, hey, we're sorry. We, we accept your policy. We love you, Dad. And it was all that. And I think that that's eventually what led me to like shut me down, man. I was disillusionment. Because you have all this hope. You're like, yeah, I'll never do it again. God bless. And we all get on our knees and pray. And, and God heal the home. It was that. It's like, <clears throat> fucking worthless. Joe, I mean, all this just sounds awful. I mean, you're a kid. How did you not just, like, fold? Yeah, this is what people don't understand. When you go inward like that and you go into the darkness, it gets real dark down there. That's where you get your most power. So as my dad was beating me and I was taking each blow, there's a different power, there's a different energy in the shadows that builds up inside of you. The animosity, the negativity... That stuff, it, it crackles differently. It changes the molecules differently. Yeah, it rearranges you and gives you power. And I was getting stronger. I was not getting weaker. I was getting demented with a very powerful rage. And that's what eventually would come out. This is episode two of The Bank Robber Diaries, Mama's Boy. It's season one of The Score from ACAST Studios and Western Sound. In the next week, please go tell three of your friends what they're missing out on by not listening to the show. Write us a review, leave a rating, and really, just share. Executive producers are me, Ben Adair, Joe Loya, Veronica Taylor, and Susie Warhurst. Producers are Cameron Kell, Haley Fox, and Stephanie Aguilar. Original composition and sound design is by Dan Leon. Production assistance from Annette Runhell. Mixing by Johnny Vince Evans. Next up, episode three, Who's Your Daddy? Stay tuned.